we've been studying a, the life and ministry of Jesus. Tonight we talk about His resurrection. John Bailey buried three sons. The last child he buried was a five-year-old boy who died with leukemia. The day after they buried their son, John Bailey went to the doctor. His name was Dr. Wharton. The man who had been so kind to them um, during the interim, the nine-month period of time from the first diagnosis of his leukemia until his death. He went to his office just to um, express how thankful he was for his kindness and love. And he wrote a book about the experiences of uh, his son's death in a book entitled, A View from the Hearse. And in a paragraph in this book, in a chapter in this book, he describes the day he went back, the day after his last son died, to the doctor's office like this. Dr. Wharton's secretary beckoned me when I approached her desk. She did not tell me as I expected that the doctor would see, now see me. Instead, she looked toward a little boy playing on the floor. In my preoccupation, I had failed to notice others in the waiting room. He has the same problem as your little boy, she whispered. I knew what she wanted. So I went and sat down by the little boy's mother, far enough away from the boy so he could not hear us talk. It's hard bringing him in here for these tests, I said. I didn't ask a question, I stated a fact. I continued, the uncertainty of whether the child is in remission or whether the cells will reappear under a microscope makes the mind run wild. It's hard, isn't it? Hard, she answered, hard. I die every time I bring him in. And now he's beginning to sense something is wrong. Her voice trailed off. It's good to know, isn't it? I spoke slowly, choosing my words with care, that even though the medical outlook is hopeless, we can have hope for our children in such a situation. We can be sure that our child, if our child dies, he'll be completely free from sickness and suffering, everything like that. And he'll be completely happy. The woman replied, If only I could believe that, but I don't. When he dies, I'll have to cover him with dirt and regret that I ever had him. She turned back to watching her little boy push a toy auto on the floor. I'm glad I don't feel that way, I wanted to say. And I wanted to leave her alone with her apprehension, but I felt compelled to say something, just as I feel compelled to write this book. She said, why did you come back this time? She didn't turn around toward me, but kept watching the child. Because we covered our little boy with dirt yesterday afternoon, and I came back to thank Dr. Wharton's kindness today. You look like a rational person. She was looking straight at me now. How can you possibly believe that the death of a man or a little boy is any different from the death 
of an animal. I'm talking tonight to rational people. Some of you are watching on television. And I have a feeling that the, some of you might not really believe that there's any difference between the death of a little boy and the death of an animal. But the overwhelming majority of us believe that there is a big difference. And the difference is not in our, what we believe about death. The difference lies in what we believe about Jesus. For after all, what you believe about death doesn't really make too much of a difference. But what you believe about Jesus makes all the difference in the world. For if Jesus went down in the grave and, and, and stayed there, then there is no difference. But if Jesus went down in death and came back out of death, promising an eternal life like that to everybody, then there is a tremendous difference between the death of an animal and the death of a believer or a little boy. What I want to deal with tonight, it's not Easter Sunday, but what I want to deal with tonight is the issue of the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to make our way through Scripture so you get your Bible and look at chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel. And we'll begin reading at verse 38. Now we're going to make our way to John 19, but while we're in the neighborhood, we're going to take a look at a couple of passages that are important. Now the hostility, uh, let me set the context, hostility against Jesus is growing. At first, he, he was a popular person, a popular figure. In fact, sociologists say that more time was lost per capita following Jesus than has ever been lost in the history of, of, uh, of man. I mean, the whole world quit work and went after him. And he was a popular figure for a while, but hostility begins to grow, and they're demanding of Jesus something that would help them to believe him. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now it is true that the way that a rabbi validated his credentials or his authority was he was able to perform signs. That's why Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know you're a teacher sent from God because nobody could perform these signs, these miracles, except God was with him. So that the validation of a rabbi's authority, his credentials were that he could perform miracles or signs. And they're demanding of Jesus a sign, his answer. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Paul says the Jews ask for a sign. It's not much different. We, we still want that. You know, it didn't require any faith if you got a sign, you know. And it's a whole lot easier, we think, if we could have signs than it is to just launch out in the commitment of faith. And we still would like to see something spectacular and supernatural and superhuman. And if we could just see those things, we'd believe. I hear people all the time telling me, if I could just see a miracle performed in my midst, 
If I could just see some kind of sign, I'd believe. And so um, Jesus, Tidwell didn't say this, but Jesus said it, that that's the evidence of an adulterous generation to always seek for a sign. He said, I'm going to give you a sign. And this is the sign. He said, the sign of Jonah, the prophet, is the sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now Jesus is saying this. Now watch this carefully. The thing that makes the Christian religion valid is the sign of Jonah, which is this, three days in the tomb and out. And, and, and regardless of whatever else you might need for, for evidence that Jesus Christ is God's Son, you have all the evidence that is necessary. This is the validation of the Christian faith. Jesus in the tomb, three days and out. Now on our way to um, chapter 19, I want us to stop off at John 10. Okay, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. He's saying nobody, I'm not crucified because somebody, um, you know, plotted to crucify me. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to lay it down and I'm going to take it up again. In other words, Jesus is prophesying his own death and resurrection. And he's saying, I'm going to give up my life, but I'm going to raise it up again. Now, um, you have a lot of people um, who are claiming to be Messiah. Uh, Mr. Moon and the whole bit. Next time you have somebody to, uh, to you know, make claims that he's the Son of God, Messiah. Okay, you say, all right, here's the validation. You lay down your life and you raise yourself from the dead. As soon as you do that, I'll believe you. And Jesus said, this is the validation that I'm Messiah. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to take it up again. Now, if that is really true, that Jesus laid down his life and he took it up again, if, if it actually happened that way, then I can be a Christian, then Christianity is true, it seems to me. Now, chapter 19 of John. We're going to look at four important facets or four important facts of the resurrection. If you're following um, your outline, it's called Pertinent Issues Related to Jesus' Resurrection. There are four of them, very important facts of the resurrection. The first is the certainty of his death. Did he die? Now all, gospel, all the gospel writers give at least one paragraph to the death and burial of Jesus. From chapter 19, we're reading verse 38 of John's Gospel. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted him permission. He came therefore and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also. Now you have two secret disciples, no longer secret. And they took the body of Jesus, bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds of weight, a hundred pounds of this mixture that they 
put on the body uh, of, uh, of a dead person. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as was the burial custom of the Jews. You've seen pictures of mummies. It's much like that. And they wrapped these bodies up in, these, in this linen cloth and in the folds of the cloth they, they put these aloes, this, this perfume, this, this, this ointment as a mixture of, of uh, spices in order to preserve the body and in order to keep the body's odor down, all right, to keep the smell of the body. They took these spices. We, we have another uh, record of somebody else who was wrapped up in these grave clothes. Who was it? You talk to me. Lazarus, that's right. And hear it, but I saw your mouth in it, so I know you know that. Wrapped up in these grave, when, he, when Jesus called him out of the grave, somebody had to go and unwrap him because he was bound in these linen grave clothes. That's the way they did it with these aloes, this spy, these, uh, uh, this uh, uh, perfume-like mixture. Now, if Jesus was alive, would they have done what they did? Two secret disciples, now brave enough to come forward and identify with Jesus Christ at the risk of death, at, le at the least at the risk of being put out of the Sanhedrin, would they have done that if Jesus had been alive? By the way, they put around their heads this napkin called a, called a head cloth. It was actually like a scarf a woman wears and was tied under their chin and that was to keep their jaw from sagging down in death. And somebody looked at the body, it wouldn't be as grotesque, seeing the mouth gaping open. So they had these, they had these bodies wrapped in this linen cloth with this head cloth tied over their face, and they had to handle this body of Jesus, put a hundred pounds of this, this uh, uh, material on him, and uh, they knew he was dead. I want you to go back to verse 30. And take a look at something else. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said it is finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Jews therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. You've got to get these bodies down before sundown on the Sabbath. It was a violation of Jewish law that a dead body would be on a, you know, be there on a after sundown on the Sabbath. So they said, now, you know, usually they let these men hang on the cross for days and die this slow, agonizing death. But they told these Roman soldiers, now let's be sure and get these bodies down. It's the Sabbath coming. So here were these men whose assignment was to be sure that everybody being crucified was put to death, was dead. And the way they, um, in, they heightened, they speeded up the dying process was to go along and they'd take a mallet and they'd break their legs. Because these men hanging on the cross would use their legs and there was a little uh, piece of wood sticking out from the cross. They, they'd put their feet on that or the nails and they'd push themselves up in order to gasp for the next breath. And when they'd break their legs, they're sagging on the cross, they'd literally suffocate. Now here were these men who were skilled in putting men to death and they came to break the legs of Jesus to, to, to increase, the, the, you know, to cause him to die quickly and they determined that it wasn't even necessary. 
He's already dead. And I, I, I don't know this, and I don't have any biblical basis for this, but I think as they turned away, one of the men, kind of as an afterthought, took his spear and thrust it into his side, just as a kind of an afterthought. Now, did he die? Yes, he did. He was dead on the cross. The second fact, fa facet or fact of the resurrection, that's important, is the material evidence of his resurrection. Did he stay dead? Now there's some material evidence. The stone is displaced. The tomb is empty. The body is gone. Now the, let's just pick up at chapter 20 of uh, John's Gospel, beginning at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. She saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went with, uh, forth and the other disciples and, and were going to the tomb. And the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, they saw the linen wrappings lying there, but they did not go in. Simon therefore also came following him in the tomb and beheld the linen wrappings lying there. It's mentioned twice for emphasis. There's something important about the fact that these linen wrappings are lying there just as they had been placed. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself so that there, was a, there were these linen wrappings and there, and there was a space for the neck, and there was this head cloth separate from them. When I was a kid, I remember one time uh, being out in the yard playing, and I found this locust. I thought it was a locust. I went over there, and I picked it up. It was just a shell. You've seen that. A hole in it. Something happened to the insides of that thing, but whatever that was, I don't know. But, but it had legs on it, had a head on it, had a back, had, it looked just exactly like a locust, but it didn't have anything in it. It was just a shell. Now in a way, that's the way this, these linen wrappings looked inside this tomb. They came. The linens were there as, as they had been placed on this slab, this limestone slab, and there was this, this cloth shaped like a head, but no head. Now why is this related to refute the kidnap theory? Because what was, what was being spread around by the Jews was that, that put the word out that these disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. Now there's a play on words here I want you to see in the Greek language. There, it, let's look back at verse 4. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. And he came to the tomb first. And stooping down and looking in, he saw. Now I want you to take your pencil, if you're taking notes, and circle that first word, saw. It's the Greek word, blepo. It means to glance at. Now, it's like glancing at your watch. Some of you have done that already, uh, I notice. Some of you are beating it like it's stopped. 
But it means to glance at. It means to see, but at a glance. It's like I'm looking here and I, I glance at this. And so they came to, this, to the tomb and they glanced in there and they saw the linen cloth. Look at verse 6. Um, and Simon therefore also came following him, entered the tomb, and he beheld, it's beheld in the New American Standard, I think in the King James it saw again, I, I'm not sure, on that. I didn't check that out, but, but, and he beheld, it's the second word, it's the word theori, theori. We get our word theorized from that word. It's the second word for saw, but it means to make a careful observation. It means to gaze at. Now they're no longer glancing at the cloth, linen cloth, lying there on the, mar on the limestone slab. They're gazing at it. They're staring at it. They're taking a long look at it. It's astounding to them. It's like he's there and he's not. And they're looking on that. Look at verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw, take a pencil and circle that word, because that's the third word for saw, and it's the word oida, and it means like I see it now. In the place where Jesus was, there's this linen cloth, just like is wrapped around a body that's not there. Separate from that linen cloth is the head cloth. Just like there was a head in it, there's not. And I take a long look at it, and all of a sudden it dawns on me. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He's alive. What happened is exactly what he said would happen. I didn't believe it when he said it. I couldn't comprehend it when he declared it. I had some kind of confusion in my mind about it. Now I get it. He's gone. He's raised from the dead. He did just what he said he'd do. He brought himself back to life. There is a third aspect of the resurrection of Jesus that's important. It has to do with physical appearances. Now there are 11 specific manifestations in the Gospels and in the letters of Jesus raised from the dead. Let me pause to say that the, that, that, that the most provable realities in all of history is the resurrection of Jesus. Now there are a lot of things that we, have, we believe from history with a whole lot less evidence than we have about the resurrection. He came and appeared on 11 different times specifically manifesting himself that's recorded in the Gospels and recorded in the letters. I want to look at three of them in the Gospel of John. The first is in verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels. That's the word beheld there. It means she's gazing upon these angels, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying, where this linen cloth was. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, I don't know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, the amazing thing was, she didn't just glance and see this person standing there. 
there was one standing there that she was staring at, but she didn't recognize him as Jesus. Now, you ask me, why didn't she recognize him? I don't know what to tell you there. I have no idea. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, you know the story. Look at this. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she recognized his voice. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. First appearance, Mary. Second appearance is in verse 19. When therefore it was an evening, on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be still. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced, what? When they saw the Lord. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now let me say parenthetically, if you want to know what your body's going to be like after you're raised from the dead, you're going to find it right here. Let me say that again. What is it going to be like in heaven for us? It's going to be, what kind of a body am I going to have? You know, what am I going to be like there? Am I going to be like these clouds floating around on this spirit? Going to have a body just like Jesus, not like his physical body, but like his body post-resurrection. Now there's some characteristics of his post-resurrection body. He could talk. So can you in heaven. He was not limited by time or space. He just appeared in the room. He could think and be gone and be at another place. He was not limited by time or space as he was in the pre-resurrection physical body. He ate. Does that mean we're going to eat in heaven? I sure hope. We don't have to worry about diet, sir. I need all I want. I mean, chocolate, fudge, <laughs> whatever that means, I don't know. He ate. He remembered. Ah, I love it. He remembered. You know what I think is going to happen in heaven? We're going to be sitting around remembering the wonderful things that we have in the Lord and the earth. They recognized him. They saw his hands and his side. They knew him as the Lord who lived with them. And he could communicate with them. He talked with them. All right, third, third appearance, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, doubting Thomas, said, we, 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 they said, we've seen the Lord. He said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I'll not believe. And after eight days again, disciples were inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, just stood in their midst, walked right through the doors, shut door, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, how do you know what Thomas said? Well, he's omnipresent now. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here my hand, your hand and put it in my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. Now, I don't know whether Thomas touched him or not. Didn't have to. What he did was, he said, Look, my Lord. Now that word Lord there is the equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah. My Messiah and my Yahweh. Now, 
you, you, you got to see this, is that he identifies Jesus as the Yahweh of the Old Testament, as the God of the Hebrew. Now, um, how, how did he come to that? <laughs> he saw the resurrected Lord. Now, take your Bible right quick. I know it's time. We've got five minutes, eight minutes. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. What I believe, perhaps, is that one of the greatest scriptures and uh, passages of Scripture, verses in Scripture. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Get the context. Verse 3, concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. He came in flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Now, how was he declared Son of God? By resurrection from the dead. There is a, for, a fourth aspect, and that's the historical result. Let me just give four of them briefly, and we're out. The historical result of this resurrection of Jesus validates his resurrection, and there are four historical results. One was the transformation of the disciples after his resurrection. Their transformation. They were changed. They were transformed. Now these cowardly men who dared not even identify themselves with Jesus before little women, all of a sudden become these bold men who declared the resurrection at the threat of their own death. And this is why, the way E.Y. Mullins puts it in his great book, Why is Christianity True? This is what he says. Most of them yielded themselves to stripes, imprisonment, and finally death for the truth of their witness. Fraud does not engender such moral and spiritual courage. In other words, a, a fraud, a, a concoction, wouldn't cause them such to, to be, have such courage. Delusion does not create moral kingdoms of heavenly beauty and power. Psychic changes, mere mental impressions springing up within and spending themselves after their kind do not rear new fabrics containing material wholly absent from the minds in which they occur. That's confusing. I'll try to explain in a minute. The tree brings forth fruit after its kind and no other. Here was fruit which was not after the human kind. The resurrection was the efficient cause and it alone was equal to the result. In other words, it... The, the only way that these men could have been transformed like this was that they were witness to the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only explanation. The only explanation. Second historical result was the descent of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus said, I cannot remain with you. I've got to go because unless I leave you, the Holy Spirit cannot come. And when he went back to heaven and ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came in power upon, to, permanently upon the, the believer and to indwell the believer. Third historical result was the establishment of the church. The establishment of the church. Now, the, one of the questions we were asked, I remember one day in seminary, is when was the church established? Was it established over in the Old Testament? When... Uh, when God called out a people? 
Was it established at uh, Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church? Or was it established when the Holy Spirit came permanently into the world? It appears to me, it's my humble and accurate opinion, that the church was established when the Holy Spirit came permanently to the world. Number four, people today who come, who come forth um, in, in, in worship services and to the Lord experience a transformation that is beyond a psychological experience. Let me tell you something. The historical result of the resurrected Christ is, is that He changes us. He changes us. Now, belief in a dead doctrine can't do that. Bring that transformation. What are the lasting results? Number one, it assures me that I am forgiven. And number two, it guarantees me that I'll be raised from the dead. You know what Jesus said to Mary and Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not a doctrine to believe. The resurrection is a person to receive. I am the resurrection and the life, and he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In fact, the New Testament uses the word, the first fruits of all believers. For Jesus, the first fruits. Let me see if I can give you an illustration of the first fruits. In Old Testament, in, in Jewish uh, ceremonial law, they had a they had a they had a festival in which they celebrated the harvest. And they would gather a little bit of the grain just before harvest time, and they'd bring it to this festival and celebrate the harvest. And, and the, this little uh, gathering of the grain that would uh, indicate the harvest, they called the first fruits of the harvest. And they'd bring this, the, these little plants, this corn or this wheat, and they'd bring it in clusters and they'd celebrate the harvest and this the first fruit. And it did two things. It guaranteed that the harvest was coming, they had evidence of it in their hands. But not only did it guarantee the harvest was coming, it was an example of what the harvest would be like. So that when Jesus was raised from the dead, He not only guaranteed that you and I would be raised from the dead, but He gave us an example of what kind of bodies we would have when we were raised. And you... Um, and I possessing those bodies which He is the first fruit. And thus, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this great doctrine on which Christianity rises or falls. And we praise You and thank You for the empty tomb and the resurrected Lord. And we pray that we'll go tonight away to live resurrected lives through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name I pray. Just a brief invitation tonight. Maybe you want to come give your life to Christ. 
somehow it needs to dawn on us that Jesus is alive. And because He is alive, and because of the fact of His resurrection, we follow a living Lord to the end of the age and to heaven. Maybe you need to come and give your life to Christ or to recommit your life to Him. Or maybe perhaps as we have almost in every service, someone come to say, I want to place my life in this church. Serve God here with you. While we stand to sing, just one stanza if you're coming, you'll need to come on the first word.